A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we get into tonight's episode, I just wanted to mention in tribute to the passing today of a Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, a great leader in the Jewish people. Uh, never met him. But he himself was a piece of Jewish history on pretty much on every level, on the national level. And he was a rabbi, a communal rabbi in the Jewish Center in Manhattan, where Rabbi Leo Jung was previously the rabbi. He was the founder of the Tradition magazine. He, of course, his main uh, place of action and influence was at YU. He had uh, enjoyed a close relationship with Rabbi Soloveitchik. In the formulator, pretty much the formulator of the Tairu Umada philosophy, and uh, in his leadership role in uh, YU, he most uh, one of his most important roles was the saving them from bankruptcy and making them uh, financially um, able to continue and grow and flourish. Interestingly, also in his scholarship, he his doctorate that he wrote in the 1960s was on Reb Chaim Volozhner, and it was really a a groundbreaking research. Um, later, it was published in Hebrew in 1971 as Teir Lishma about Reb Chaim Volozhner and Nefesh Chaim and the ideas of Reb Chaim Volozhner. And it became a literally a groundbreaking classic and cited by anyone who came after that, uh, revolutionized the field of Nefesh Chaim, of the thought of Reb Chaim Volozhner. And he also wrote on Hasidus. He wrote books and and uh, essays on Hasidus and Hasidic thought. So he really covered both ends there. Very multifaceted individual. And with that, we will move on to tonight's topic. It was just recently in Erev Shavuos, just a couple of days ago, the first yard site of Reb Kamenetsky, um, who, when he passed away last year, had a tribute episode to him. Now it's the the uh, yard site, so instead we'll move over to his book, Making of a Guttle, which is 
a book that, you know, it's 1,400 pages long, and a lot of people don't have access to it. And myself, well, you know, I wanted access to it, and, and they, excuse me, back in the day it was hard to get. So for years I struggled with a PDF version of the book, and eventually I had enough of that. So I knew an uh, older uh, Talmud Chacham in Yerushalayim who had the book, and I knew he wasn't using it, so I asked him if I can uh, if I can uh, borrow it for uh, an extensive period of time, which you know continues till today that borrowing. And he was all wary of loaning it to me, you know, and what would become of me if I had it in my house. So he said, you know something, everyone says that having internet if you if you need it for your job then you can definitely have internet in your office and in your house so you need a book like like making of a gadol for your job for your parnasa so you definitely can have it in the house also so i got there my first edition copy of making of a gadol but most you know a lot of people don't have access to it and also even if you do but to go through it's quite a tedious read of uh, close to 1,400 pages. And therefore, a lot of people don't get the full potential that the book has to offer. There's an amazing wealth of stories, of inspirational stories, educational stories. And, uh, you know, it's there. And um, I just want to share a few of the stories. This will probably be eventually, over time, many parts to this. You know, you could uh, go on forever and, you know... Uh, harvesting the wealth of the stories that are there in the book. So we'll just uh, try to, you know, continue his legacy of sharing inspirational stories of the world of yesteryear and the great leaders, the great G'dayli Yisrael of yesteryear, many stories from the book. And occasionally I'll even add in uh, another story that I feel might be related. It's not in his book, but it's in his spirit and can kind of continuing his legacy of, of, uh, of, uh, using stories from the past to be able to inspire in the present, which enables us, of course, to build for the future. So there are a few themes of uh, of the book. Um, for the first theme, which is pretty much the dominant theme, is that it's like 99.5, percent uh, about Lithuanian Jewry, about Litvish Jewry, the yeshiva world, the Musser movement, very heavy on the Litvish side. Um, he enjoys describing the small towns and the big cities in the area, the rabbis, very often obscure rabbis, simple Jews, the economy, the the uh, way the different shuls in each town's work. Um, of course, the dominant theme throughout the book is his father, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Valazhin Yeshiva, the Slabatki Yeshiva, the Altar of Slabatka, Rabarch Ber Libowitz, Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Yisrael Salanter. These are figures that figure prominently time after time after time, story after story after story, and also less prominent uh, are many others, um, but those are the general themes um, of the book. So, the well, he it's interesting, in the introduction to the book, he goes through the pros and cons of studying Jewish history and uh, how much time to devote to it and different opinions about how important is it, biographies of great Jewish leaders, stories about great Jewish leaders. He interestingly quotes Rebarch Ber, 
Leibowitz, you just had Shavuos, so I don't know how many of you g- did it, um, but Rebarch Ber Leibowitz, the Rashiva Kamenetz, he, uh, on Shavuos, he would talk about stories of his early days in Valozhin. And uh, that was that was one of the things he did on Shavuos. And the, and he used to say that his Rebbe, Reb Chaim Brisker, would do that for hours and hours. I don't know about Dafka on uh, specifically Shavuos, but he would do it for hours. Um, Rebbech Ber, on the last Rosh Hashanah of his life, just a couple of months before he passed away in 1940, Reb David Salavechik, may he live and be well, he went to Rebbech Ber, and it was in Vilna already, on Rosh Hashanah, and, and, and Rebbech Ber shared stories with him. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, so through David Salavechik, um, Rav Gustman, Rav Souls of Gustman, he remembered when he was a uh, Rav in Vilna, in Shnipeshak, a suburb of Vilna. So he remembers that he remembered that there was an elderly man in Vilna who heard from his grandfather uh, things about the Vilna Gain. And Rav Chaim Grajensky, the great uh, leader, would go to this elderly fellow to speak to him about things that he heard from his grandfather about the Vilna Gain. It's interesting, I remember, uh, of course this is not in the book, um, in Galicia, the Tiferes Shleim of Radomsk, Shleim Rabinovich of Radomsk, the founder of the Hasidic dynasty, so he was, uh, he, he once heard, in a little shtetl somewhere in Galicia, he heard that there was an elderly lady who had worked in the home of the Rebbe of Melech, the Naimali Melech of Lezhensk, when she was a young girl. So he traveled to her, and she was an elderly woman, she couldn't come to him, and he went to her and asked her to relate what she remembered from the house of the Naimali Melech of Lezhensk. So there's this desire to go seek out from the previous generations. And uh, Rabbi Yankov Kamenetsky himself, he said that he attributed his long life uh, to in, to be able to bridge the gap between the generations and tell them the stories of what he had witnessed. Interestingly, in that context, Beryl Wine told me once that he understood the Gemara that says, if, I don't know where it is, that uh, but it's a famous Gemara that that uh, one of the um, one of the Tanoim he said that the, he attributed his greatness to the fact that he saw the back of Reb Meir. So Rewine wanted to use it as a parable to our generation, the post-war. He said, we saw the back of the last generation of Europe, the survivors, the last great rabbis that came over, the ones who made it out and came to the United States, came to Israel. We saw the back of a thousand years of Jewish Europe, and that's what enabled us to be able to build the greatness of the Jewish world today. So... That's you know that's just as a as a theme. Uh, one of the stories there in the book is uh, is um, there's a term in, Has- in in the Hasidic world called a gutter yid, and in the Hasidic world that refers it's a euphemism for a rebbe. Kutzker used to refer to himself as a gutter yid, a good Jew, and other rebbes and tzaddikim were referred to as a gutter yid. So one time, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Who was not a Hasidic rebbe in the in the uh, in the in any way, shape, or form? So, but he Hasid once met him, and he saw Rabbi Yisrael Salanter as a big tzaddik. So he this Hasid gave uh, a pidyon. He gave a sum of money as his custom to a Hasidic rebbe. He gave it to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. 
Rabbi didn't know what to do with the money. So he said to this chassid, he said, in your culture, someone who takes is called a gutayid, a good Jew, because he's the rebbe, he's a tzaddik. And Rabbi said to him, but by us, in our culture, someone who gives is a gutayid. And so you're the one who's giving here. So you're a gutayid. So daven for me. So uh, that was the way he looked at it. And that also says a lot about the the, the you know the ideals of Rabbi and the Muslim movement. It also reminds me, I once um, met an elderly uh, Galitziana Yid, um, uh, old survivor from a small town in Galicia near Krakow. And he was um, living in Yerushalayim in his later years. And I was wanted to schmooze with him and ask him about his life and whatever it was. And he asks me my name. It was old, you know, a little bit of a bitter uh, Galiziano, which is you know rather typical. So I said, my name is Geberer. So he said, a Geber. He said, a geber, a geber means a giver. He said, I never heard of a giver. I heard of a lot of takers. I've never heard of a giver. A, a giver. Another story that he has there is about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's cousin, the, later the Rashivanary Israel, Rav Ruderman, Yaakov Ruderman. And he says there that Rav Ruderman grew up in a Chabad home. And it was actually Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's grandfather that pushed him to go study in Slabatka where when he got to Slobodka, the altar of Slobodka, Rasti Finkel, had him drop anything that had to do with his Hasidic background, and Rudiman became a pretty hefty misnagid uh, in his later years, and, and, and uh, you know, cut off any roots that he had with his Chabad, uh, his Chabad uh, roots, his Chabad, um, you know, family uh, traditions. And in uh, the place where Yaakov Kamenetsky grew up, was a small little shtetl called Dolhinov. And he related, Rabbi Yaakov himself would say over, how in the Dolhinov Cheder, the school that he learned in when he was a young child, he came late one day, and the Rebbe accused him of watching some sort of Christian ceremony the night before. And he almost beat him even, which was the customary educational tool that was accepted in, in those days. So Rabbi Yaakov, I don't know, he was eight, nine, whatever he was, he organized a class revolt. He got the entire class to go swimming, even though it was during the three weeks in the local lake or river or wherever it was, and the Rebbe was very upset. And and Rabbi Yaakov said, he falsely accused me. I didn't stay up late watching that ceremony, so I wanted to rebel, so I got everyone to go swimming. He said the Rebbe should have been more understanding. He knew I was a good kid. When he made a rule that we're not allowed to go ice skating, I listened to him and I did not go ice skating until I was 16 years old. So he should have known better. And he said it's an educational lesson that a Rebbe should know his Talmidim, he should understand his students and sense if they're telling the truth or not. And, and he said that lesson made him a better educator later on in life because he was able to learn from his own experiences and, uh, and, uh, and relate and tried to sense uh, his own students about what they're uh, what they were going through. Now, um, he later moved to Minsk, 
Um, so there's a lot of stories there about Minsk, and he talks about the Minsker Gadol, Rabbi Rucham Yehuda Leib Perelman, who was one of the great leaders of his generation in the late 1800s. And it's interesting, the appellation that he gets as the Minsker Gadol. Where did he get that from? So he brings all kinds of versions there about how the Minsker Gadol came to be called the Minsker Gadol. So he said because there were two, one version was that there were two candidates for the rabbinate, and the one was more had more maskilic, enlightened tendencies, and then there was the Minsk Gadol, who was who was a Gadol, who was a great person. And the question was, would the Minsk community choose someone who was more enlightened or someone who was more great in Torah scholarship? And when they chose, so when they said they chose him, they said they chose the Gadol candidate, not the maskil candidate. So that's how he became to be called the Gadol. Another version was is that even though he wasn't as great as the previous Rav, who was Rav David Tevel, who's one of the earliest students of Rav Chaim whose whose yard site is, this, is, is coming up this week, uh, not the Nachos David, the um, Rav Chaim Velazhener, well, last year I remember on his yard site we had an episode about him also, um, so the, one of the students of his that was the, later the Nachos David, Rav David Tevel, he was the Rav in Minsk for many years, so when Rabbi Yerucham Yehudalei Perelman was hired, so he was, they said he's, he's not as great as the Nachlas David in the previous generation, but still he's, he's a gadol, he's great. So he became to be known as the Minsker gadol. And part of the complication was is that in Minsk, no one was known as the Rav, as the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Minsk. They were known as the Mora de Asra, which is an Aramaic term which kind of means the same thing, but in the semantics, it wasn't exactly the official chief rabbi. And the reason that they never called the Rav of Minsk the chief rabbi is because they, um, there was some, either some sort of tax or some sort of debt that, uh, that was owed to the rabbi, to the previous rabbi. And they wanted to get out of, get out of paying the taxes or this debt that was owed to the rabbis. So they decided to stop calling the chief rabbi the chief rabbi in this way there's no one to pay the debt to or to pay the taxes to so interestingly um the in the context of um of minsk one of the great minsk rabbis who there's a story about there was rabbi shuat simblist who was originally from grodna from rodna and he was a rosh Hashiva in minsk in one of the local shuls and he continued to teach Torah in Minsk under the most adverse conditions, even following the revolution, even under when communist rule in the Soviet Union was solidified, and Minsk was in the Soviet Union from the revolution time. Late into the 1920s, he still had ho- over a hundred uh, bachram, a hundred students in his yeshiva for different ages, different levels. He was supporting them, he got them food, and and it turned out actually, incredibly enough, that there was a Jewish communist in the local Minsk office who was protecting them, who even though there was a file about the yeshiva, about Rabbi Shuat Simblist, um, because Rabbi Shuat Simblist, not only was he a teacher of Torah, but he was a tremendous balchesed, someone who cared for others and would do anything for anyone. And and he had helped this this uh, this Jewish communist grew up as an orphan, and he had, Rabbi Shuat Simblist, many years earlier, had helped his widowed mother before Pesach, despite the fact that he had no none of the public collected funds that had already been allocated, but Rabbi Shulzim gave from his own 
um, from his own, literally from his silverware, he pawned it and, and helped them out. And this boy never forgot that. And even now he was a hardened communist. And these were counter-revolutionary activities taking place by having a yeshiva in Minsk. He protected him and he had his file hidden and destroyed. But uh, he warned him to get out because he was being transferred and uh, the yeshiva eventually closed down. Rabbi Shuitzimblist himself was able to escape from the Soviet Union, and he made it to uh, Eretz Yisrael, um, where he lived in Yerushalayim. And in fact, when we go on our tours to Harazesim, so one of the prominent kvarim in the center of that, where everyone is, Rav Kook and Alter Slabatka and everyone else, you have Rabbi Shuitzimblist, who is not as famous, but he was the great uh, Minsker uh, Torah leader. Now, um... Another story that he brings there is an interesting interaction that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky had with the Satmarov. Rabbi Yaakov asked the Satmarov in, in what merit in, did the Satmarov feel that he had been able to escape alive from the war under the Nazis. And the Satmarov said, it's the merit that I never go to sleep. The Satmarov had a famous custom that he would learn Torah every night until he just dozed off on his table over his farm, and then when he would wake up, he would start uh, learning again with an alacrity, with you know, completely fresh. He never went to bed to go to sleep. Um, and he said that in that merit, he feels that he was uh, saved. So the Satmarov said, you got out before the war, even broke out. So what do you think was the merit? He says, back to Rabbi Yaakov, what was your merit? So Rabbi Yaakov said, it's because from a miyoyim omdi al daiti, from the young age of my childhood, I never said a lie. And, um, you know, I sometimes go for 15 minutes without saying a lie. Um, and Rabbi Yaakov is able to say that he never did, never, ever, since he was a child. Um, so, talking about uh, amazing people. Um, and going back to Minsk, uh, at the turn of the century in Minsk, there's a fight over the, not only in Minsk, in Eastern Europe, in the towns, and the, especially in the big cities, there's a fight over the heart and soul of the Jewish youth at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. So one of the Minsk characters who grew up in Minsk uh, at the time was a fellow by the name of Eliezer Kaplan, who later went on to become a leader in the Zionist movement, and he moved to uh, in the Third Aliyah. In the 1920, he moved to to Israel, to was then Palestine, and he became a leader in the Jewish agency, and he's later the first finance minister of the state of Israel. So when he's still in, a young guy in Minsk, he organized Zionist youth groups. And Rebruven Grzovsky, who was, who was from Minsk, his father, Shamshin Grzovsky, was a, a rabbi of a suburb of the, of the city. So Rebruven Grzovsky organized uh, Torah study groups for the youth. He organized them in groups and tried to get them to go to the local yeshivas, and he even tried sending the better ones to Slabatka, which he did, to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, to Rabbi Aaron Cutler, to others. He saved them. He uh, brought them and sent them to Slabatka. So Rabbi Ruvain was doing this uh, counter-operation uh, of organizing learning groups, so study groups for Torah. And Eliezer Kaplan wasn't excited about this, this what Rabbi Ruvain was doing. And they had an actual violent confrontation where Eliezer Kaplan um, slapped him. And that was the, the, the there was a struggle. Uh, it gives a really sense of the times. There's a struggle of who's going to conquer the youth, who's going to get them over to their side. He speaks a lot about, in the book, about Slabatka. 
and about how, you know, what type of yeshiva Slabatka was. So there's a story there about when Reb David Libowitz came from, transferred from Radin to Slabatka. So in Radin, you know, some of the boys had beards. In Slabatka, no one had a beard. So when Reb David Libowitz came to Slabatka, he had a beard and no one said a word to him. After a couple of days, he went to the altar of Slabatka and said, what, well, no one's speaking to me here. So the altar looks at him and says, oh, you came to study here? You came to learn here? We saw that you have a beard, so we figured that you're about to shuva from Berlin. Sometimes those people come here to see what a yeshiva looks like. Uh, and, you know, he was probably being facetious with them, um, but he was trying to give him a sense of what Slabatka is all about. Now, another person whose yard site was just recently, just yesterday, um, the uh, Isru Chag Shvuas uh, in America, the Second day, it was Rzela Gruvein Bengis, um, who was later the Rav in Yerushalayim, or the Edecharedis, but he was one of the superstars of Valozhin. And when he was in Valozhin, so there was the struggle over over incorporating secular studies into Valozhin, and there was limited uh, secular studies allowed by the Nitziv in Valozhin, but very limited. And he relied on people like Rzela Gruvein Bengis, who were natural geniuses, to know the secular studies on their own, so when the Russian czarist inspectors came to see him, he would produce Rebzela Gruvein, and the inspector would test him and say, what do you know, what, what have you been studying? So a popular, um, one of the most popular people in Russian literature at the time was Alexander Pushkin. He was so popular amongst the Jews that sometimes people would say, a good Jewish home has Pushkin's books. That's, that was like a sign of a, of a, of a Jewish home. It was, very, it was very popular. So he said, oh, I, I'm studying Pushkin. So he said, yeah, let's see you recite something from Pushkin. And Rizala Gruvain would, would flawlessly recite from memory a whole piece from Pushkin. And the Russian inspector, uh, you know, wasn't stupid. So he sees this guy, he, he's... He seems like he's really smooth. This guy knows it so well, it sounds like he even knows it backwards. And Zell Gruvain is a great genius. He says back to him, oh, I do know it backwards. Do you want to hear? And he started reciting it backwards. And at that point, it blew his cover. He's, so he's, the, the, the inspector says, I need to see a regular guy in Valazhin. This guy is, is, is not, he's not normal. He's not regular. So he's not... Uh, we can't substantiate the 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 the, the, the established uh, curriculum based on this genius because he clearly is the exception to to the rule. Um, another story he brings there, also a powerful story that I sometimes say by Rebarch Ber's uh, kever in Vilna. Is Rebarch Ber uh, his his daughter got engaged to a promising young Talmud Chacham, and after during the engagement, this young man for reasons that weren't clear, broke the engagement and left his daughter brokenhearted and was very sad. Later on, this young man had the chutzpah to come back to Baruch Ber and ask him for a letter of recommendation because he's going into the rabbinate and he wanted to get a letter of recommendation from Baruch Ber about his credentials. And Baruch Ber goes ahead and writes him a letter of recommendation and then shows it to an outside objective observer to ask him to see if there's anything not fully, uh, is he not praising him fully? Is he holding something back because of his personal grudge? 
And he said, just because this guy did something not nice to me and my family, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be effusive in my praise of him for his future, for his livelihood, for his position, because I can't mix in my own emotions into what's, uh, into what's, uh, what's important for him and his future. And amazing, uh, again, about who Rebarch Ber was and his value system and the beauty of his, his ways. He also has a bunch of stories, one after the other, about the care that great people had in taking money from others, which is also Amazing lesson. He has a story by Yisrael Salanter that following his uh, leaving his position in uh, in Kovna and his last official position was in Kovna in the Neviyazer Klois. Um and after that he never really had a steady position anywhere. So how did he live? He lived off the generosity of others, which really bothered Rabbi Yisrael Salanter that he had to take money from others to live, and it really he really bothered him for the rest of his life, talking about for a period of um, close to 30 years after, about 20, 20-something years afterwards, and it really, really bothered him. One time in his old age, he, he was hosting a, a visiting rub, a visiting rabbi who was staying by him, and Rabbi Yisrael offered him a meal, and he said to the rabbi, he said, for you, it's 100% kosher. Like, what do you mean? He said, for me, it's not so kosher, because people are giving me the money because they feel like I'm a great man. And I know the truth that I'm not such a great man, so it's stolen goods. But stolen goods, if I transfer it over to you, so then it's a shinoi rishus, it's into someone else's position, so then it's kosher, you're allowed to eat it. But for me, it's like eating stolen goods. And that's how Rabbi Sosalanta looked at it, which is similar to the story of the Chavitz Chaim that he brings, that um, that during World War One. Someone sent him 300 rubles. The yeshiva was desperate for funds. They were on the run. And 300 rubles was a significant amount. And the Chavetz Chaim sent it back. He said in the letter accompanying the 300 rubles, he writes all these extraordinarily praising titles uh, for me, all these things about me. And it's clear that he would never have sent the money if he would know, if the donor would know that I'm not all that. I'm not that. So since I know that I'm not that, I know the truth, so I have to return it. And he did. He went ahead and returned it. And then he brings a story from the Satmarov that uh, before Rosh Hashanah once, in his old age, he mentioned to his gabai, his close confidant, that he has to do teshuva. He said, I, I cheat my chassidim out of their money. He said, they think I'm a great man. And they think that I'm a great Talmud Chacham and a great tzaddik. And uh, they're, they're, I'm someone so special, and that's why they give me the money as a pidyon, because they think they're giving it to tzaddik. But I know the truth, so I'm cheating them out of their money, and therefore I have to do tshuva. So these are just one uh, taste of stories. We can hopefully have many, many more installments of stories from from uh, the book. And uh, this is Yehudi Geber at Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Geberer is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. And of course, you can check out the website, YehudaGeberer.com. There are questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest in Jewish history. Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at J Soundbites, and I hope you enjoy.